on July 25th, 2019, the call occurred. I listened on the, in on the call in the Situation Room with White House colleagues. I was concerned by the call. What I heard was inappropriate, and I reported my concerns to Mr. Eisenberg. It is improper for the President of the United States to demand a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen and a political opponent. Dad, I'm sitting here today in the U.S. Capitol talking to our elected professionals. Talking to our elected professionals is proof that you made the right decision 40 years ago to leave the Soviet Union, come here to the United States of America in search of a better life for our family. Do not worry. I will be fine for telling the truth. That was former U.S. Army Colonel Alexander Vindman testifying in 2019 about the notorious phone call between then-President Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky, the one where Trump pressured the new foreign leader to launch investigations that would embarrass Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. Vindman's plain-spoken account was a pivotal and dramatic moment that ultimately led to Trump's first impeachment by the House. But Vindman's closing words, addressed to his father who brought his family from the old Soviet Union to the United States more than 40 years ago, has an eerie echo today. Despite his assurance to his dad then, don't worry, I'll be all right for telling the truth, Vindman last week filed a lawsuit against Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and two other former White House aides accusing them of running a coordinated intimidation and retaliation campaign against him. That, he alleges, has cost him, quote, significant financial, emotional, and reputational harm. We'll talk to Vindman about his lawsuit and, as a former Ukraine analyst on the National Security Council, about the current Russian threat to that country on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. You know, we all remember Vindman when he uh, first, you know, burst onto the public scene in 2019, gave that testimony. He's not a dramatic guy. He's, there's no theatrical flair. But his life story was and is so compelling. He comes to this country as an immigrant from Ukraine when he's a three-year-old. His father brings him here. He grows up. He joins the U.S. military. He is deployed. He gets a, a, a purple heart from an IED in Iraq. He serves on the National Security Council and then found, finds himself thrust into this enormous scandal simply for testifying what Donald Trump was doing. And, you know, it was... Um, it was a gripping story at the time, and you know, reading his lawsuit, it's pretty gripping today as well. Yeah, the testimony was really moving because he's sort of lived out his principles and his beliefs about the promise uh, of the United States of America. Um, so you didn't have the feeling that it was someone who was up there kind of spouting uh, platitudes. And of course, he paid a price for it, and uh, he's... Uh, looking for accountability. I, I don't know how strong his lawsuit is. I guess time will tell. 
but there certainly are facts that uh, could, and I hope we'll see the light of day uh, in terms of his, his treatment. Yeah, and they the they suggested are, he was a spy, that he had dual loyalties, that he was, you know, really a Ukrainian national who was going to be appointed to the Ukrainian government and therefore he could not be trusted. Never mind the fact that it was the Trump White House that had him in as it's their chief Ukraine and Russia analyst at the NSC. Well, one of the things that's interesting about his lawsuit and that echoes even to this day is that it lays bare the kind of attack machinery that was deployed against anyone who stepped out against Donald Trump and anyone who kind of didn't tow a rigid line of loyalty to Trump and Trump's vision. And it it echoes down to this very moment when we consider what the Republican National Committee did in terms of censuring Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger over the weekend and what is clearly an ongoing and continuing machinery to discipline anyone who who breaks ranks. Yeah. And and meanwhile, you know, when this uh, Ukrainian-American soldier was working at the National Security Council National Security Council on these very important national security issues involving Ukraine and Russia. What's his boss doing? Uh, Donald Trump. He's playing footsie with the Russians and he's exploiting the Ukrainians for political reasons. And now here we are a couple of years later in in the midst of this crisis where uh, Europe for the first time may be facing a major war the first time since World War II. So there's something uh, poignant about about this whole story, and I'm I'm glad we're going to get to hear him not just on his experience uh, in the in the aftermath of the Trump impeachment, but on these really critical issues because he is an expert on Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, no, and- he was the guy at the NSC who dealt with all these issues, so he's as qualified as anybody to try to figure out what's going on now. Yeah. And I think, and as and as to what's going on right now, I think we have to say. It's been a little bit surreal, uh, you know, a little bit hard to believe that we may be really at the pre- precipice uh, of a of a major land war in Europe. And of course, we all hope it won't happen. But there is the, this feeling of a kind of a, a inexorable momentum toward toward war, not just because of the rhetoric of the Biden administration, but because of the action of the Russians. I mean, you are uh, seeing more troops, Russian troops, getting closer to the border. They've moved equipment right on the border, and now they're moving in personnel to, you know, personnel to deal with this equipment, including tanks and artillery and anti-aircraft batteries. They've got these tent encampments, which are set up in these very difficult conditions, mud and snow, and clearly temporary because they can't sustain this for a lot longer. And so Putin is now in the position where he's going to have to make a call, either escalate and go to war or try to find some way to to save face, which I, I don't right now see how he does that. So it's pretty scary. There's another thing from the first impeachment trial of Donald Trump besides Vindman's testimony that I tend to remember a lot, and that's towards the end when Adam Schiff, who was uh, leading the, the prosecution of Trump, uh, concluded saying, if you don't stop him now, he'll do it again, and he'll do it again. And that was with relation to Trump. And I think that's definitely true now with relation to Putin, who uh, within the last 20 years has invaded Georgia, and that, that's the country, not the state, and, and Ukraine previously, and no 
kind of effective accountability for those two previous acts and now the third time on the march to Kiev, possibly possibly yeah i mean it is pretty striking to listen to u.s officials in the last few days because they are talking increasingly like an invasion is a fait accompli and, you know, you hear all the, you know, related reports about false flag operations and other things the Russians have planned. You don't know how much of this is, you know, a form of information warfare where we're playing up and trying to out them about things, you know, hoping that's going to have some sort of, you know, deterrent effect. We'll see. But the official position of skullduggery has been... Putin is not going to invade. <laughs> that this is saber rattling. Did we have a did we have a vote on that? Did, yeah, no, Skull, but it's, it's, it's too. It, maybe Skullduggery isn't a democracy, though. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> by the way, but but we could have a vote. Uh, I mean, I think Clydeman is with me on this, or at least he was in the past. So you know, already we got two out of three. Here. I I had uh, been. Um, I no, you're wavering. I, I'm you're wavering. wavering. I am. I am yeah. wavering. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm sticking to my guns, at least until we talk to Alexander Vindman. So let's get to it. We are now joined by retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. Alex, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me on. So lots to talk about, especially with your lawsuit that you filed last week against three associates of our former president. But obviously, you are an expert on Ukrainian relations, Russian relations. You formerly oversaw U.S. policy at the National Security Council, and everybody is on edge right now trying to figure out what Vladimir Putin is up to with Ukraine. He's got more than 100,000 troops massed at the border. What's your take? Are we looking at an imminent full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia or something less? I'm quite pessimistic about being able to avoid a major war between Russia and Ukraine at the moment. I think it's a dynamic situation New factors keep coming in to, uh, you know, to have me start to kind of evaluate if there's really a significant turn for the better. Uh, nothing really significant. I think at this point, the last bits of military capability are flowing into Russia, into Belarus, positioned to the north, east, and south of Ukraine. Those are troops that are sleeping in tents, and that, that's a difficult situation to be in. I've been in, in some really cold weather as an infantryman out in the field. It's a hard thing to sustain. So I think we're probably looking at some sort of action or resolution to this in the next couple of weeks. Nothing really has shifted us off of, there's not been a, a breakthrough on the diplomatic track. There has not really been a, a breakthrough with regards to a coherence around pressure to get Russia to uh, not conduct this operation. And meanwhile, these forces are building up. I think we're, we're basically set for a major confrontation. One of the things that puzzles me is all the reports out of Kiev say 
that the population there don't seem to be particularly alarmed or as alarmed as the rhetoric in Washington and European capitals reflect. You served in the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. Uh, you're obviously from Ukraine originally. Explain the, this disconnect between what we're hearing from folks on the ground in Ukraine and what we're hearing from officials in Washington. Sure. So first of all, it should be uh, noted that, you know, my ability to read the minds of the Ukrainians is limited. I came over here as a, as a toddler. So I grew up in the United States, but I did live there and I have studied the region extensively. It's not less, not necessarily the population that is so divergent from kind of the, some of the analysts in the, the U.S. government that are saying that war is coming. It's the it's leadership. And there are different reasons why the leadership is behaving that way. First of all, they do, do not want to spook the population. They want to keep keep calm and carry on. They don't want to speak the uh, spook the markets that are frankly already quite spooked and are uh, causing huge headaches with regards to the, the Ukrainians' uh, ability to to borrow, to refinance debt, and so forth. And then there's kind of the the general uh, recognition that we don't really necessarily fully internalize here is that Ukraine's been in a state of war for eight years. It's had folks dying on a regular basis. And I think on that in that frame, there's an in you of this kind of hostile environment that has crept in. I think the population also hasn't experienced anything on, on the scale of what's about to unfold. And um, there's maybe an element of not, you know, of fearing the worst case scenario. There was, I'm not sure if you caught the fact that in the last day or so, the Ukrainians announced that they'd be conducting their own readiness exercise that's going to run concurrently with this uh, Russian, Belarusian exercise. So they're taking it seriously to a certain extent, not as seriously as I would have hoped. I mean, I've served in places like Korea, where it, the northern portions of Korea are like a fortress, all designed to impede a, a, a North Korean attack. And the, the Ukrainians aren't behaving like that, but they are taking it seriously. They have repositioned forces. They just are in a, a different mindset. Alex, let me, let me ask you what I think in some ways is the most vexing question, at least for me, which is Putin's calculation here. You know, it, it, it seems like this is way beyond his, potentially way beyond his usual playbook of... Uh, you know, sowing chaos and and dissension and and knocking uh, the Americans and 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 the West off balance. You know, yes, he invaded Georgia, he seized Crimea, but here we're talking about, you know, potentially, you know, the biggest land offensive in Europe since World War II. Has he? You think he's really thought this completely through? And you know, I asked about his his calculation, but is it? possibly a, a serious miscalculation on his part if he goes through with this. I don't think he he could have conceivably thought it all the way through because frankly, the situation's dynamic and has been changing. At the beginning of the year, or beginning of last year in 2021, when he first started to assemble forces and conduct saber rattling, it seemed like it could have been just another bout of diplomatic coercion. But at the time, it made sense for him to start to leave the options open to conduct an offensive, you know, a year down the road. And it's because of the fact that he perceived a, you know, a deep rot within the U.S. Uh, it was on the, you know, just days after the attack on the Capitol and, a, and an insurrection, hyperpolarization, Trump not leaving the, the scene in the U.S. and uh, continuing to sow chaos. 
there seemed to be a big gap between where we and our allies were. You know, this was not too far off from when this first started. Uh, the U.S. had a uh, first ambiguous policy on what it would do with regards to Nord Stream 2 and sanctions. Ultimately, it waived them to preserve relationships with the Germans. Uh, but there was there were clear divides between where we were on uh, the Russia threat and where our European allies were. He was reading the tea leaves at the time, also on U.S. pivot to Asia and the fact that the, there would be a heavy price to be paid for, by the Biden administration to get a free hand with regards to, to focusing on Asia. That would be a sphere of influence for Russia. That A lot of that has actually started to, to prove to be false. That's why in certain regards, I kind of, you know, I'm a tiny bit more optimistic that we could find our way out of this is that the opportunities that he thought existed at the beginning of 2021, all the way through probably the end of 2021, may not frankly exist. Uh, if anything, he's forcing Ukraine, uh, forcing um, uh, the Euro-Atlantic Alliance, NATO, and the U.S. to really focus in on the Russian threat and build coherence around the purpose of NATO. Uh, he's forcing uh, the U.S. and NATO, uh, or at least coalition of the willing, to support Ukraine with arms. He's forcing a posture change where U.S. Uh, forces are returning to NATO after really reducing the force structure there massively after the end of the Cold War. Even after 2014, we, we still had, you know, uh, we reduced our, our posture, but slowly it has have started to build it back up. So some of those things should start to affect his calculus. I think it would be a tragedy for the Russian population and for Putin, I think, if this unfolds, because it won't be, yes, he, he might quickly achieve his military objectives with regards to Ukraine, but he's also going to be ostracized. He'll be a pariah, and it's going to uh, really... Uh, further isolate Russia in a way that's not going to let Russia to make major the major adjustments it needs to to be competitive in the 21st century. But it's also going to be a catastrophic for the U.S. and NATO. It's going to reshape the um, European security environment. Russia will assert its right to or its ability to use military force to achieve its objectives. And it's probably going to go ahead and encourage other authoritarian states to maybe take a similar track. So I think it's for, it's going to be a loss for all parties uh, if this unfolds. Uh, and uh, that's probably one of the reasons I've been pretty critical of the, at times I've been critical about of the Biden administration, that they haven't done enough to avoid it. Now, have they undertaken a massive diplomatic effort to try to do something here? They have, but it probably doesn't meet the, the uh, requirement of what we need to do. So I want to home in a little bit quickly on the nature of the war that's about to unfold, because we've spoken a lot about troops on borders, but there's a whole different set of fronts that are probably going to be involved. A propaganda war, a cyber war, a financial war. I'm wondering whether or not those kind of fronts have already been opened vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. And finally, in addition, unlike a kind of a kinetic war those are the sort of wars that can spill over into the United States and spill over into Europe. What do you think are the odds of massive cyber attacks that leak into the United States or into other parts of Europe? I think those are very high. Frankly, the reason I wrote, uh, I've written a couple of things for New York Times and Foreign Affairs laying out the fact that this won't be a limited, this could very well not end up being a limited war. Uh, we already have NATO allies, the Baltics, Poland, the UK, saying that they're prepared to support Ukraine. And Russia has to contend with that. There's a chance that, the, uh, based on the fact that there are safe havens outside of Ukraine, the Russians might feel like they're backed into a corner 
especially if they're suffer, suffering heavy casualties and need to respond. I think that's that's on the military scale, on the military plane. But on the, you know, what we often call competition below the level of armed conflict, it's kind of a fancy term that's saying sh- short of shots being fired, there's still a lot of uh, um, war going on, uh, cyber war, information uh, warfare. And this is going on now. It's been going on for a long time. Uh, you know, it's in the attack on U.S. Uh, elections in 2016 is part of that. The cyber attacks on Ukraine recently are, are, are part of that. And these are things that are ha- do have the, the highest probability of having a spillover effect. So you could envision a legitimate scenario. This is not like a far-fetched hypothetical in which Russia conducts major cyber offensive against Ukraine in preparation for its conventional war. It seeks to attack and disrupt Ukrainian critical infrastructure, communications, power grids, you know, all the kind of utilities. But those things don't they're not limited. They're going to they're going to they are absolutely going to spill over as they have in the past to uh, Europe and to the U.S., then the U.S. is forced to respond. That's an escalation. So is it sort of like a cyber world war? Is that is that what we're talking about? I, I think, you know, I this is that's a really interesting point. I think we could see something unfolding where the spillover requires a response by the U.S. and, and NATO. And that's a, uh, that could escalate very quickly to easily the European, the entire European theater, or more broadly, I'm not sure if I would necessarily think that you know the the Chinese would would weigh in in this regard because they don't want to necessarily be drawn into this conflict. But maybe the North, the North Koreans and the Iranians jump in. They see some opportunities. Alex, I wanted to just follow up very quickly on something that you said before, which is that you're somewhat critical of the Biden administration's handling of this. I'm, I'm curious what specifically you think they should have done that they didn't? Is it that they, is it that they started too late? What, what's your criticism specifically? So I think, you know, they, they definitely get credit for starting to build out this pressure track. They don't, they've only been doing that really coherently since the beginning of, of this year, since January. It was a diplomacy, uh, uh, talk about diplomacy without like, and then, you know, some talk about sanctions, but really without building the, the coalition that you would need to implement those sanctions, those sanctions seemed hollow because you, Germany wasn't on board with sanctioning this Nord Stream corridor. Basically, this is energy conduit between Russia and, and Germany. There was no wep- the weapons didn't start to flow in until recently. Postured U.S. forces didn't start to go in to start to reassure Europe that we're th- going to be there for, for NATO until recently. They deserve credit for you know the, all this diplomatic engagement to get Europe that has very diverse views on Russia as a threat together. But they also deserve a significant amount of criticism for doing too little and too late. Too late because they you know initially didn't seem to come around to the, to this threat. Uh, now that's it's interesting because I'm aware of the fact that the professionals have been tracking this situation this development for months. But the senior policymakers didn't seem to come around to this threat until really quite late. Uh, you only start seeing seeing take things seriously in the November uh, November and December timeframe, and even then, it's kind of like some sort of hesitation about whether this is just simply diplomatic coercion or if this is likely to be a war. And then uh, too little because this is probably not going to be enough to to uh, factor in or really deter Russian action. So on that basis, I think, you know, they 
I think that they're, we're going to be in a situation where there's a major war in Europe. Uh, it's not just going to be a land war. It's going to be air power, sea power uh, from Russia being employed. And uh, we've not done enough to, to avoid it. When we talk about deterrence, look, after the Crimea annexation, the Obama White House imposed sanctions after the Russian interference in the 2016 election. They imposed sanctions. I think on White House computers, uh, sanctions is always autocorrected with the word crippling in front of it, you know, crippling sanctions. And yet, obviously, those sanctions joined in by the EU didn't have any deterrence effect on Putin. What makes one think that uh, the crippling sanctions Biden is threatening would be any more effective? And uh, if you were still at the NSC, what specifically would you be recommending? So there's a, uh, there's a lot of roadway uh, in front on sanctions, on things that we haven't done. Uh, that that's on debt markets, that's on a conduct, a conduct of financial transactions that will make it impactful. But it's probably not going to be impactful enough to, to deter Russia. And the reason is that Russia has built this $630 billion war chest to deal with the consequences of, of even crippling sanctions. It has built a robust relationship with China, including the ability to conduct currency exchanges and financial tra- uh, transactions that will ease the, the, the sanction shock of crippling sanctions. But I think it's, you know, we, we talk about sanctions usually as the beginning and the end of what we can do with regards to deterrence. That's not true. I think sanctions are one of the pieces here that are going to be necessary. And right now, we're, they're threats, and they could be perceived as hollow threats. I think there's a reason that, to believe from the Russian side that these are hollow threats, because the Europeans are not necessarily keen on absorbing the, sh- the shock of, of sanctions. They have the strongest economic relationship. One of the things we should be doing is we should be passing legislation. The Biden administration supports this Menendez Ukraine Support Act. We should pass it. And then basically that signals that these are there's going to be snaps uh, sac- sanctions. As soon as Russia conducts this, hands are tied, legislation, sanctions go in. That would be a good way to kind of show that these sanctions are real, that they'll go into force. But there should be, uh, we uh, we should also be providing the Ukrainians, it's oh, pretty much too late at this point, but we should have been providing the Ukrainians with a lot more advanced military capability. That advanced military capability, while it wouldn't have been deterministic and probably wouldn't have been kind of the, the necessarily the key deterrent for Russia, it start, would be as part of sanctions and part of the other things that we're talking about, would be impactful. And you could still get military benefits from, from advanced capabilities. You might not be able to roll in all of the, you know, the, the bells and whistles of a, let's say, Patriot missile system, anti-air, anti-missile system. But you'll still be able to get some effects from it. And it's something that the Russians are going to have to contend with. So we, we, we tend to be pretty paternalistic about what we offer to our allies, especially in this kind of crisis. We should be less so. And then with regards to posture changes, these are relatively light movements. I mean, 3,000 troops going into uh, Eastern Europe is, is not all that meaningful. Just imagine in the Cold War, you know, where we're, there was a, a point in time where if we had seen tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops from the uh, our Eastern Bloc move into position, we would be responding seriously to that kind of situation. Why do we think now that Russia's capability 
uh, is is so limited. I think we just for the sake of preserving our alliance, we should be taking it more seriously and sh- showing that we have teeth also. Although Biden has taken you know U.S. combat troops off the table, he says they're not going to be involved in any conflict in in Ukraine. So was Biden right to do that? And if so, what difference does it make if three thousand, five thousand, or fifty thousand U.S. troops go to Eastern Europe if they're not going to be uh, involved in pushing back against the Russians? Well, the, for one, it would signal the fact that Russia is precipitating the exact kind of uh, security dilemma that it wants wants to avoid. It does not want European uh, U- U.S. troops or European forces, NATO forces going into Eastern Europe. That's something that it, it claims is threatening, but it's precipitating it. So that's that's one of the signals that you, uh, uh, positioning larger uh, troop forces in uh, Eastern Europe would make sense. But I think there is something more important to be said about you know, your, your point about taking U.S. troops out of the equation early. I completely agree with this, uh, this notion of not forcing a bilateral confrontation between the U.S. and Russia. That's to nobody's interest. We don't want to take what is still potentially a regional, local confrontation of a massive scale and then bilateralize it and go up the escalatory ladder of confrontation between the U.S. and, and Russia. But we also probably didn't have to declare that so early. We a, a policy of strategic ambiguity like we have in Taiwan would probably have been quite helpful here and uh, shape some of some of Russia's calculus. We took that off the table back in the beginning of December for some strange reason when we didn't need to. That's something we could have held in abeyance until you know days out of a confrontation, and then use that to reduce the temperature of bilateral confrontation. It just didn't seem like a. I didn't understand why that was happening. It didn't make it. Is there a scenario in which you think the U.S. should support, maybe help organize, assist, train an insurgency in Ukraine, something along the lines of what we did in Afghanistan in the, in the 1980s, or should that be off the table? No, I think that's completely appropriate. We should be doing that. Our allies are already doing that. And the reason is that Russia is upending, uh, you know, basically European security in such a substantial way that even if it does conduct this operation, it needs to pay, pay a, a extremely dear cost. And that's really the, the you know, uh, Vladimir Putin can't simply conduct this investigation, attack another so- a sovereign independent state, a state that he's that Russia swore an obligation to secure when it gave up its nuclear weapons. Uh, when it signed a number of different treaties uh, recognizing Ukraine's sovereignty and um, uh, territorial integrity, and then just turn around and and um, uh, attack the state without suffering a cost. I think there's a interest and a values proposition for supporting Ukraine in as uh, as as robust a way as we can. The values proposition is pretty straightforward. Ukraine is a democratic straight state. Tens of thousands of people have gone out on the streets uh, at two various points when there were authoritarian efforts to steal, either steal an election or to uh, suppress the will of people. This is a country that is in 30 years is, is actually made major strides towards democracy. So that's the values proposition that if the U.S. wants to, as, as we've discussed in this in this format of um you know, this, the democracy summit, if the U.S. wants to nurture democracy, then it needs to play a, a helpful role. But the interest proposition is even more important. 
this has the very real possibility of spilling over in a big way, whether that's in cyber or in actual military confrontation. It has the the a real probability of really destabilizing Europe because thousands and thousands of refugees are going to be flowing into Europe. It has the real probability of of potentially expanding with greater Russian aspirations, uh, casting eyes on on the Baltics or something of that nature. And all these things are really detrimental to U.S. interests. Not, we're not even talking about the geopolitics of, you know, what what signals does Russia does China pick up from this? What signals do Iran and, uh, and North Korea pick up from this? So there's a strong values and interest proposition to support Ukraine. You know, when you talk about leaving on the table the prospect of U.S. troops getting involved, there's a chunk of the public that's going to listen to that and be really spooked and say, you know, my God, do we really want to risk a direct military confrontation with a nuclear power in Moscow just months after Joe Biden pulled U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. We're going to get involved in another overseas war that is potentially even more problematic. How do you respond to people who say, look, it's just not worth it for the United States to um, risk a serious military conflict with Russia right now? Sure. So I I would say... Uh, first of all, I would say that uh, the risks are, are minimal, but I'm going to start with the something. The risks are minimal. You just uh, outlined the, the spillover on. effect about no, this the, could the be risks, a global the conflict. The risks are minimal of a bilateral confrontation because Russia has zero interest in uh, having this escalate to a nuclear war. They're very good at saber rattling. They're very good at signaling. They're very good at you know at, at do, uh, executing a pre-programmed st- a set of steps to get us to be worried about it. That's why they uh, alert their nuclear forces. That's why they, they, they conduct these civil defense drills because they're, they know it's, it's part of the doctrine. It's called reflexive control. They know how the U S is going to respond. It'll immediately, the mindset will go to a nuclear confrontation. The Russians also don't have any interest in a conventional confrontation because the U S and NATO are vastly superior. Now the Russians have, they don't have any Local interest security. in a in a in a military confrontation. They've got a hundred thousand troops but not with the West. on the border. That's not that's that's with Ukraine. That's part of the reason that signaling that the U.S. is not going to be involved actually precipitate uh, had a uh, an effect of advancing Russia's thinking on conducting this operation because they didn't have to contend with war with the U.S. and NATO. That was off the table. So my my point was actually pretty pretty simple. It's poor diplomacy it's poor tactic tactics to take that decision off the table especially that early when the re- likelihood of a confrontation with russia is negligible and that's all it does is pr- pr- frankly indicate that russia has a free hand so my my criticism is you know not anything to do with like the wisdom of keeping this from becoming a bilateral conf- uh, confrontation nobody wants that it's based on on the art of diplomacy and how you conduct this, it was probably not the, the, the smartest thing to do. Imagine what uh, if we disp- uh, dispensed with our, strate- our uh, strategic ambiguity around Taiwan. How would that affect uh, Chinese calculus around conducting an operation in Taiwan? Probably advance it, right? It's the same thing here. We didn't need to do that. We didn't need to do that both because the probabilities of, of a confrontation were low and 
we were actually kind of nudging a confrontation by saying, we're not going to be here. You guys could, you guys have a free hand. So it's, it's, it's just understanding the way this, this, uh, the art of, of diplomacy, the art of these negotiations. I didn't think that was a good idea, but underscoring one, the, this one point about the prospect the prospects of a confrontation, they get much, much higher when the shots are fired than they are today. Uh, Russia and the U S do not want to go to a nuclear war. Zero interest in that. Russia and the U.S. do not want to go to conventional war. Russia in particular is terrified of this prospect. I've seen the negotiations and I've seen these these discussions when U.S. missiles are flying into bases in Syria that are housing Russian troops. They do not want to tangle with the U.S. But we, we also should recognize that by constantly taking a step back and saying, well, there's a small, tiny infinitesimal chance of some sort of confrontation, that we needed, we we just need to go be completely hands off. It's when this firing starts, when the shooting starts, that's when things the fog of war sets in. That's when the possibility of a confrontation that increases significantly. And that's why I think we should be doing everything we can to avoid it. My pro, my prescription is about avoiding war. It's not for to to trigger it. So you were in the news last week for Ukraine related issues of a long time ago, far away, far, far away, you sued Donald Trump Jr., uh, Rudy Giuliani, and two officials within the White House for violating the, uh, for conspiring to violate the Ku Klux Klan Act. Tell us about the lawsuit and more particularly, tell us why you thought it was important to bring this lawsuit. What motivated you to do this? Well, I've been uh, adamant about this uh, idea of holding the corrupt accountable. Uh, it's something on my very first day out of uh, uniform, uh, August 2020, I wrote an article in, in the Washington Post talking about accountability and uh, values-based leadership. And it's something that I've been very firm on since I left the military. I've participated in, you know, in, in different organizations to advance the, the interest of accountability to protect whistleblowers. And I guess I should mention that you know, I, I worked for Lawfare as a senior fellow. I wrote an article, probably, probably nobody remembers it, it was uh, on this idea of using litigation to start to affect the decision-making of, of the corrupt, whether it's in the media space or, or officials, to get them to, to recognize that there's a cost involved here. I mean, this is, there's, there's something to be said about like tradecraft and diplomacy uh, in national security also carrying over to this situation. And I had the ability to, to take action. Under the, the Ku Klux Klan Act, uh, I have a legitimate claim that uh, Don Jr., Trump, uh, who orchestrated it, but Don Jr., Dan Scavino, Julia Hahn, and Rudy Giuliani conspired to uh, impede my testimony and then punish me for uh, uh, in retaliation for my testimony. And that warrants, on multiple levels, that warrants a, re a response. What specifically did they do? Well, there's, uh, so uh, the list is pretty extensive. I mean, it's a like 70 something page report, but you see the, the numerous uh, attacks that the uh, Trump administration, Don, Donald Trump himself and his proxies, Don Jr. being one of the key proxies in the media space, uh, attacking me, directing the media landscape, the right wing media landscape uh, with these attack points, whether it's something as simple as, uh, you know, questioning my credibility, claiming I'm a leaker claiming that uh, I have dual allegiances. This this whole narrative around, um, if you recall, there was a narrative around me being offered the position of uh, Minister of Defense in Ukraine. That was given in confidence through official channels. I reported it to uh, the White House 
when I came back from that trip. But the White House then proceeded to leak it to both the, the media and to uh, House officials to attack me as, as non-credible witness. So all of this stuff was orchestrated to have a, um, a chilling effect on me and on other folks from coming forward. And that's, that's intolerable, unacceptable in a democratic society where the rule of law should govern. It's uh, completely inappropriate for, for, for these officials to try to impede the, the conduct of official duties in my case through this, this uh, campaign of intimidation and retaliation. Uh, and I'm, uh, on that basis, I'm taking action. Why did you choose not to um, include Donald Trump in your lawsuit? Why not sue him? Is that because he's in the chain of command or what, what's, the, what's the legal rationale for that? So the atto- attorneys could, could weigh on this in a more substantive way, but it basically opens up a uh, series of hurdles that based on executive privilege that, that would uh, maybe slow down justice or impede justice here. And I could, uh, I think in pursuing the claim the way I did, I could do this relatively quickly without having those hurdles and uh, expose the wrongdoing, expose the corruption. When we get to discovery, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, all the documents and the records around this issue. And uh, if, if in fact, we, we will have, uh, um, I think we'll be successful here because it's a very strong case. But when we do that, we will start to chip away at you know, these bad actors around Donald Trump or bad actors around any corrupt official thinking that they could uh, behave without consequences. They could get away with their, their corruption without consequences. So this is, this is a direct effort to pin back the network of enablers for the corrupt because the principal can't act without those enablers. And that's why I, I filed against those particular individuals. So it's often said by people who are employed by the White House that they serve at the pleasure of the president and that the president ought to have free reign to manage uh, his or her, I guess one day it might be a her, you know, personnel, fire people at will. Uh, Wouldn't your lawsuit basically inhibit future presidents from being able to manage who's staffing them and who's a part of the National Security Council? I, I completely agree with that assessment that the, uh, the the staff serve at the pleasure of the president and the president isn't uh, should be able to enjoy uh, you know the privilege of having a, per, a personal staff or a, a professional staff that serves his policy interests. This is not that. This is something completely different. This is a legal proceeding, probably the most important legal proceeding in which the president was being in which the president was under when which committees were conducting an investigation to uh, uh, to determine whether to impeach him, and he impeded, and he and his enablers impeded the the uh, justice. He tried to prevent me from testifying, and then he retaliated me from testifying. So this is, you know, this is completely different than the president conducting his business, whether it's foreign policy or domestic policy. This is the, uh, impeding the the good order of government. It's basically. It's the notion that this is way outside the norms. This is during a legal proceeding that the president is looking to attack witnesses that are that he feels are are danger to him. You know, another another argument that some people might make against your lawsuit is that many of the people that you sued were just basically uh, exercising their First Amendment rights to disagree with you or to to call you nasty names, which uh, usually you you can do under the First Amendment. Why didn't they have a First Amendment right to attack you? Well, this is not this is a conspiracy. And I think, uh, frankly, we will we'll meet the legal requirements for this. 
pretty easily. Uh, this was a conspiracy organized by the president and his enablers to uh, attack me uh, directly. So these were mouthpieces that attacked me directly or through the, the, the uh, media landscape. This has, uh, with the intent of intimidating and preventing me from uh, from testifying. This is has nothing to do with the First Amendment issues. As a matter of fact, frankly, uh, in the same way that Donald Trump isn't one of the defendants, we sought to avoid this question about First Amendment issues by not targeting or not going after, at least at this moment, other named persons in the report, like Fox News or Laura Ingram. She's named throughout. But to avoid this, this question about First Amendment issues, we, we basically went after these enablers that uh, had a specific purpose in, uh, in their intent, which is collaborating with the, the right wing media to prevent me from uh, testifying and then punishing me for testifying. You mentioned uh, Laura Ingram. Uh, I should note that uh, one of the defendants in your lawsuit is a young woman named Julia Hahn, who worked at the White House, previously worked for Laura Ingram, also previously worked for uh, Steve Bannon at Breitbart News. And I gather your theory of the case is that she was being used as the conduit to Fox News, to right-wing media for attacks on you? Yeah, there were multiple such conduits, frankly. When the president wasn't doing this himself, when he wasn't literally picking up the phone and, and feeding attack lines to you know, Fox personalities or to uh, Fox News leadership, uh, he would use his staff to do the same thing. This will be shown in discovery and in court that these, these individuals were tasked by the president directly to, um, you know, to, to feed the right-wing media uh, this information. I think that close relationship between folks like Julia Hahn and Laura Ingram is is well established in the fact that they could pick, uh, she could pick up the phone and and communicate directly with Laura Ingram. But there's actually even the smoking gun in this case. The smoking gun was this uh, memorandum that uh, Julia Hahn uh, is on the uh, sent out to right wing media. It was supposed to go to right wing media. Unfortunately. You know, they weren't super sophisticated or super careful. It ended up going out to uh, more broadly. And um, da the Daily Beast acquired this memorandum and reported on the fact that you know, the White House was attacking one of its own staffers with it, with all these narratives that we talked about. Dual allegiances, leaker, you know, traitor, all this kind of stuff is in there. So to wrap up, there was one paragraph in your lawsuit that got my attention and I'd like you to address. You, of course, you know, testified in those impeachment hearings about Trump's effort to get Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, to launch investigations of Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and the Democrats in general. And that's when the attacks on you commenced. Uh, and in the lawsuit, you say the actions taken by defendants against Lieutenant Colonel Vindman sent a message to other potential witnesses as well. Cooperate and tell the truth at your own peril. The message reverberates to this day as witnesses subpoenaed by Congress in connection with the investigation into the events of January 6th continue to heed former President Trump's instructions to defy those subpoenas, undermining Congress's constitutional oversight role and the fundamental principle of checks and balances. So you are drawing a direct connection between what happened to you and the White House pressure campaign against you and what's going on now with the January 6th investigation. That's absolutely right. Frankly, it's, 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 it's a really quite logical uh, argument to make. Even the Ukraine scandal itself 
was just the beginning of an enterprise uh, designed to win the 2020 election. Uh, at that point, he was looking for dirt on Joe Biden. But uh, when he failed to do that, when uh, Trump failed to do that, he pursued other means. He pursued uh, th this big lie about stolen elections. So it's all part of kind of like a, a continuing uh, uh, ongoing effort with regards to how he sees different actors in his orbit that could uh, uh, advance his uh, interests. I think what feeds those are two things. One is benefit and the other one is fear. So some some of these actors act on benefit, like, you know, the Josh Hollies of the world will act on benefit because they see a way to pander to Trump. They see a way to pander to the base and continue to curry favor and, and you know, potentially enable a, a, a follow on Senate run or a presidential run. Who knows what, what kind of aspirations these have? And the other one is fear. It's the fear of consequence. It's the fear of that you will be attacked by the president. Uh, you'll be, if you're a Republican, you will not be in the good graces of the, of the Republican Party. You'll be censured and that there will be severe consequences for you not supporting the president, not uh, uh, towing the party line. We see that experience with um, Kinzinger and, and Cheney. And then, of course, you know, the, the ultimate, I guess, the, the topping on this effort is if I get to power, you could expect to be pardoned if for any wrongdoing. So, I mean, it's it's a pretty darn comprehensive effort to encourage or compel actors to carry the president's water. And I think that's why this case is so important is because if folks enablers feel that the, the pain suffer the consequences of uh, participating in this corrupt enterprise, uh, in this case, a conspiracy, then they will think twice. They will think twice about the benefits and they'll think twice about the costs. And that's why this case, I think, is so important. Well, on that note, I want to thank you uh, for your insights into uh, all of this, uh, um, in, starting with what's going on uh, between Russia and Ukraine right now. And uh, we will definitely want to uh, continue to stay in touch to hear your analysis. So thanks for joining us. Thank you all for having me on. I really enjoyed the, the, the tough questions. Thanks. Thanks.